Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, author and journalist Chris Hedges is a radical by U.S. standards. He believes our system of government is so compromised by corporate influence that nothing short of revolution and corporate overthrow can fix it. He points to history for examples of peaceful revolutionary movements. His suggestions include nationalizing banks and utilities. I don't think that we can work with corporate power. I think corporate power must be destroyed or overthrown. I'll repeat that for the Homeland Security person. That's overthrown. And Hedges says the Bernie Sanders campaign for president isn't the answer. For a recent column in Truthdig, he wrote, quote, No movement or political revolution will ever be built within the confines of the Democratic Party. And the repeated failure of the American left to grasp the duplicitous game being played by political elites has effectively neutered it as a political force, unquote. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and prolific author. His most recent book is Wages of Rebellion, The Moral Imperative of Revolt. In 2014, he was ordained a Presbyterian minister. He practices prison ministry in New Jersey. Hedges spoke at a Town Hall Seattle-hosted program at Seattle University's Campion Ballroom on April 25th. Thank you to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Edward Wolcher introduces Chris Hedges. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Edward Wolcher. I am the program uh, curator at Town Hall Seattle, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's conversation with Chris Hedges, presented in partnership with our friends at the University Bookstore, who are in here somewhere. They're over there. Um, uh, And uh, Seattle University, who uh, are a wonderful partner for this beautiful space. Um, Support for this uh, series at Town Hall, our civic series, is provided by the True Brown Foundation, the Real Networks Foundation, with media sponsors provided by KUOW. Now on to tonight's program. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of 11 books, including Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, with the wonderful cartoonist Joe Sacco, uh, The Death of the Liberal Class, Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle, American Fascists, The Rise of the Christian Right and the War on America, and the seminal War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, Uh, I wanted to add quickly on a personal note, since we're speaking at a university tonight, um, I started my own university career in 2003, which as much as right now is a kind of weird political moment in American history, that was a very strange moment just a few months after the invasion of Iraq. And as a young activist, War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning was actually a profoundly censuring and grounding text to think about the war and the anti-war movement during that period in in history. Uh, And so just personally, I have great gratitude to Chris Hedges and great honor to to be able to introduce him, and also for the students at, the, at Seattle U who might be in the room tonight, Chris Hedges is a great gateway drug into, <laughs> uh, into activism, so uh, appreciate that. A uh, couple more quick words. Um, he, his career in journalism spans over 30 years. Uh, for 15, he was a New York Times correspondent, um, sp- spending time reporting from more than 50 countries, numerous conflict zones, war zones. He's also an ordained minister. He has sued the U.S. president, and he speaks four languages. (laughs) Uh, He's a fellow at the Nation Institute. It's like a dating profile. Uh, He currently writes a weekly column for uh, the digital magazine Truth Dig, and he uh, is also teaching uh, courses to prisoners in the maximum security prison in New Jersey. Um, Please join me in offering a warm town hall welcome 
to Chris Hedges. Thank you. And thank you very much for coming. Um, obviously, tonight I'm going to look at the political morass that we have fallen into uh, and examine the insurgent candidates, Trump and Sanders, what that means. For the last 10 years, I've been not just writing about but reporting on the malaise of American society two years with the Christian right in megachurches across the country, an examination of the American liberal establishment and what has happened to it in death of the liberal class, empire of illusion, the end of literacy and the triumph of spectacle. It's how you get a reality star like Trump as a viable presidential candidate. Days of destruction, days of revolt with the great Joe Sacco. Again, we spent two years on that book traveling to the poorest pockets of the United States to look at the nature of unfettered, unregulated capitalism what it does in these sacrifice zones, Pine Ridge, South Dakota, the second poorest county in the United States, where the average male has a life expectancy of 48, that is the lowest in the Western Hemisphere outside of Haiti, where at any one time 80% of the residents have neither electricity or running water. This is America. Camden, New Jersey, which per capita is the poorest city in America, and not surprisingly the year we were there, uh, per capita the most dangerous city in America in terms of homicides. Coal fields of southern West Virginia, produce fields in Immokalee, Florida. The point of that book being that it's incumbent upon all of us to look at these sacrifice zones, these places that were sacrificed first by corporate power, corporate interests, because we've all become a sacrifice zone. And, of course, the, my last book, Wages of Rebellion, The Moral Imperative of Revolt where I, I write that the most pressing existential crisis of our time is to grasp what lies before us, in particular the effects of climate change, and yet resist anyway. Rebellion has a moral imperative. I was arrested last week in front of the Capitol for Democracy Spring. (laughs) 
And so that 10-year period when I came back from overseas where I had covered disintegrating societies, whether in the former Yugoslavia I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe. And because I had reported on that process day by day, I brought that body of experience back into the United States and went out into my own country, in many ways a foreign country to me after a 20-year absence. And what has now appeared before us are many of the symptoms, visible symptoms of a society in deep and one could even argue perhaps terminal decay. And as all of you who, uh, like me, read climate change reports, you know we have no time left. In Death of the Liberal Class, I talk a lot about that process by which our radical movements opened up the space in American democracy. Howard Zinn, of course, makes this point in the people's history of the United States. One of the advantages of teaching in a post-literate society is that when I submit my reading list to the prison authorities, they have no idea what are in these books. So I write up a very boring survey of American history and our three branches of government, and it gets approved, and then I give all of my students the people's history of the United States. (laughs) I taught a class a year ago spring called Conquest, and I used Eduardo Galeano's Open Veins of Latin America, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and CLR James's Black Jacobins on the Haitian Revolution. And uh, I had given my students the syllabus, and there was a Wednesday that I wasn't there. I was in Montana. And I got a phone call in the hotel room, and they said, uh, this is the Special Investigations Division of the Department of Corrections of the state of New Jersey, and do you know that your students just led a sit-down strike in our prison? And we think you're behind it. (laughs) And so they uh, revoked my credentials until I went in for a two-hour interrogation. Uh, And I didn't didn't know about the sit-down strike, but in a way I was behind it, of course, because they had read those books and and understood uh, that, as Frederick Douglass says, Power concedes nothing without demand. Uh, And it was very moving. It was moving and and kind of got to the theme of the last book because they all knew what was going to happen to them. You're not getting out of a prison. Um, And their cells were searched and they were interrogated and they did find the leaders, the two leaders, who were immediately shipped to another prison and put in solitary confinement. 
But we've reached a moment in American history where those mechanisms within a capitalist democracy that had once been able to protect our basic rights and address our basic grievances have been taken from us. We've undergone, as John Ralston Saul says, a corporate coup d'etat in slow motion. And in Death of the Liberal Class, I go back to World War I. The great writer Dwight MacDonald, a writer I like very much, says that World War I was the rock on which radical movements were broken. And they were broken by Woodrow Wilson, one of the darkest presidents in American history. Aside from being a racist, he created the system, first system of modern mass propaganda, the Committee for Public Information, the Creole Commission, that pioneered the understanding of crowd psychology under Le Bon, Trotter, Sigmund Freud, and others, passed the Espionage Act, the Sedition Act. And when you go back and read the radicals of that period, Randolph Bourne or Jane Addams, they decry how effective that system of mass propaganda was, which appealed, of course, to, to how people feel, that people were not moved by facts or reason, but by that a manipulation of emotion, and how effective it was in turning even socialists and the intellectual class behind the war effort. And they write with some despair. And we entered after World War I, a period MacDonald describes as unique in modern history. And that is a culture gripped by what he calls the psychosis of permanent war. He said none of the political theorists of the 19th century, including Karl Marx, anticipated the psychosis of permanent war where the day World War I is over, the dreaded Hun becomes the dreaded Red. And after the war, they shut down Appeal to Reason, which was a socialist journal with the fourth highest circulation in the country. They shut down the masses. They deport Emma Goldman and Berkman and other radicals uh, in the Palmer raids. Um, Eugene V. Debs at this point is already in prison and will sit in prison until uh, I think it's 1922. And that was the time in which these movements that had opened up our closed system, and our system was designed to be closed. You read the Federalist Papers, and there is a deep and abiding fear of direct or popular democracy and all sorts of mechanisms put into place to prevent that possibility, including the Electoral College. That's how Al Gore gets 500,000 more votes than... George W. Bush, and George W. Bush is appointed president by judicial fiat by the Supreme Court. Congress uh, or senators were originally appointed. And, of course, at the beginning, women, African Americans, Native Americans, white men without property were all denied the vote. And so you had that struggle, long and bloody struggle at the 
uh, end of the 19th century. We had the bloodiest labor wars of any industrialized nation. Hundreds of American workers were murdered. Tens of thousands were blacklisted by vigilante groups, the gun thugs, the Pinkertons, the Baldwin Felts. And from the end of World War I, that past century in American history, there has been, in the name first of the war against communism, a mechanism by which the populist and radical movements that organized to open up the space, the abolitionists, the suffragists, the labor movement, were destroyed. And then, of course, after, in particular, World War II, with the McCarthy hearings, Ellen Schrecker has written two very good books on this, one on the academy, No Ivory Tower, about the purging of the universities, not just the universities, but the high schools, so that the FBI would go into high schools with a list of four, five, six, seven teachers who were communist or soft on communism or uh, without, of course, any evidence, and they would immediately be fired and blacklisted. And the, the, the more high-profile attacks against Pete Seeger or Hollywood are known, uh, but Schrecker points out that this was just pervasive throughout the society. The only mechanism that we have as citizens to protect our rights and defend our interests has never come through formal political parties, but through movements and organizations that never achieved positions of power, but held fast to moral Imperatives, one can see it in the civil rights movement under King, where certainly until he was assassinated in April of 1968, he was one of the most powerful political forces in the country because when he went to Memphis or Selma, 50,000 people went with him. And that mechanism by which we forced power to respond came from movements. And it was a liberal establishment that was able to ameliorate the system in such a way to mitigate the anger and the frustration. And the classic example of that is Roosevelt's New Deal, where Roosevelt writes that if his fellow oligarchs do not begin to respond to the widespread suffering, they will get revolution. That's Roosevelt. Those are Roosevelt's words. And so in essence, he tells his fellow oligarchs that it's better to give up some of your money now or you may lose all of it. And that is how we get government created 12 million jobs, public works, social security, 
And Roosevelt, looking back, says that his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism. And we've forgotten that history, uh, in large part because it's not taught. The historical amnesia which has gripped the country is by design. And with the fusion of corporate and military power after World War II, because, of course, we did not demobilize the arms industry, but as we did after World War I, but united it with the corporatists who used massive amounts of federal spending to keep us, in essence, on a war footing, but also worked with the corporatists to destroy any political figure or any movement that challenged that corporate military cabal that is, I think, as Seymour Melman, the economist at Columbia, argued, disemboweled, destroyed the economy. Henry Wallace would be a good example. The 1940, Roosevelt's former vice president, who ran in 48, and until McGovern was probably the last figure to really rise up against the military establishment. And this, of course, something that Sanders has not done. Because challenging that establishment is political suicide, which he fully is fully aware of. And yet at the same time, we are never going to have a society that is able to roll back these programs of austerity. We just saw a week ago a million more people erased from the welfare, from the food stamp program. It's just this slow descent. And so the radical movements were broken. In the name of anti-communism, the liberal establishments were destroyed. That's how you get a figure like Bill Clinton, both the Clintons, who create this fictional form of liberalism, and Obama is not exempt from this, where you speak in the old language of liberalism, but you betray the very constituency that you claim to represent. And I think that's what's happened in both parties. So the Republican Party has looked at nativists and right-wing Christians and anti-abortion activists and people in the gun culture as their useful idiots, and the Democrats have looked at people of color, the poor, unions, the traditional educated elite as their useful idiots. They have both essentially turned politics into anti-politics, and by that I mean the culture wars are not about politics. And so that on all of the major structural issues, whether it is the expansion of imperial power beyond our ability to sustain it, 
now the longest wars in U.S. history. And I speak as someone who spent seven years in the Middle East. What do we have to show for it? Aside from the wholesale destruction of countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, the creation of failed states like Libya or ISIS, it makes no sense. But of course, there are powerful corporate interests for whom war is a great business. A Tomahawk cruise missile costs $1.1 million, and when they invaded Libya over a span of days, they dropped uh, 500 of them. That's half a billion dollars. The whole expansion of NATO, this makes no sense in terms of national security. We had promised Gorbachev, Reagan had promised Gorbachev with the fall of the Berlin Wall that NATO would not be expanded beyond Germany. But it's expanded because Poland and Czechoslovakia, and these are arms markets. And I think that we are seeing foreign policy virtually hijacked by corporate forces in contravention of what makes any sense not only in terms of foreign policy, but in terms of military policy. But that has just been writ large now throughout the entire culture, the whole primacy of profit. And no society that I know of in the last few thousand years of human civilization has ever embraced the notion that the dictates of the market should determine the construction of a society itself. It is a species of utopianism. That's what neoliberalism is. It's it's not a rational idea. It's an ideology which, as Marx understood, serves the interests of that tiny corporate elite that profits from it. But all of the ideas that were sold to us about neoliberalism as bolstering the middle class and providing jobs and even protecting democracy, because, of course, neoliberalism is incompatible with democracy, it destroys democracy, have now been proven false across the political spectrum. And you're watching this rage, legitimate rage, rise up throughout American society. And much of that rage is being expressed, especially by a white underclass, in the traditional forms of fascism. I was in Montgomery, Alabama, with uh, the great civil rights attorney, Brian Stevenson, who spent his life fighting on behalf of prisoners on death row, not surprisingly, most of whom are poor and black. 
and we were walking through Montgomery, and Brian was pointing out all the new Confederate memorials that had been put up throughout the city, all within the last 10 years, including a massive Confederate flag that flies now on the outskirts of the city. Half of Montgomery is black. It is where Dr. Martin Luther King began his ministry. It is where Rosa Parks refused to give her seat up on the bus. And before I had gotten there a few weeks before, the Sons of the Confederacy had held a reenactment of Jefferson Davis's inaugural on the steps of the state capitol because Montgomery was the original southern White House, southern seat. And I said to Brian, this is exactly what I saw in Yugoslavia. That when people are pushed to such a moment of despair and hopelessness, They retreat into a mythical vision of the past, a form of magical thinking. The idea that the economic destruction of America, much of it we must lay at the feet of Bill Clinton for NAFTA, and uh, of course they're going to vote on this new trade agreement, the TPP, in the lame duck session after the elections. The idea that persecuting Muslims or undocumented workers or homosexuals is somehow going to make America great again. But it shows the way people have unplugged themselves from the difficulties before them, the inability to grasp what's been done to them, Alexander Berkman wrote an essay called The Idea is the Thing, which I use a little bit of in the new book. And he writes that when a ruling class loses, when its ideology loses its credibility, whether that's the divine right of kings or Luther challenging the hegemony of the Catholic Church. The the superstructure or the facade of power remains in place. But you begin a process of ferment. He likens it to water boiling in a kettle. So that at the end you see the steam and you hear the whistle, but you've not watched that process of ferment. And I think that's what we're seeing now within this election campaign. This deep frustration, and, and I would say it is a frustration which people have every right to, being expressed against a closed political establishment. Now, the Democratic Party, it looks has successfully locked out Sanders. Within the Republican Party, if Trump does not get that first ballot, it appears that they are quite 
willing to disembowel themselves to prevent him from getting the nomination. And my criticism of Sanders from the beginning, and it's something that I have spoken to him about, is that he tried to run within the confines of the Democratic Party. And his argument, and he wasn't incorrect, was that if he ran as an independent, he would end up like Nader. Um, And he's right. If he challenged the Democratic Party in a meaningful way, the Democratic Party would use their considerable resources to turn him into a pariah, as Dennis Kucinich was, within the Congress to mount a serious challenge against him in terms of a Senate seat in Vermont. And he did not want to be pushed into the political wilderness. Of course, the corporate media, uh, which hasn't been very good to him anyway, uh, would shut him out. So he was correct in that he would not suffer the retribution of the party and he would have a platform. But my fear is that at a certain moment, because he's within that structure, he is going to take the enthusiasm and the energy and attempt to direct it towards the Clinton campaign. And at that point, he becomes an impediment to everything we must build. We are not going to build a movement outside of the formal structures of power in an election cycle. Cereza started polling at 4%. Ten years later, they took power in Greece. And that's how we have to begin to think, to free ourselves from the highs and lows of American culture. We have to stand fast around these moral imperatives. We have to begin to build a movement by which power is frightened of us. And that's Carl Polyani in The Open Society and Its Enemies. He says, the question is not how do you get good people to rule most people. Polyani writes, who are attracted to power are at best mediocre and usually venal. (laughs) The question is how do you make the powerful frightened of you? So as Ralph points out, our last liberal president was Richard Nixon. Not because he was a liberal or had a conscience, but because he was frightened of movements. I saw the, when I, for the book Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, I was down in West Virginia with a guy named Ken Heckler who was in Congress, and unlike the current politicians from West Virginia, didn't work for the coal companies. And he uh, authored and got on Nixon's desk uh, the black lung compensation legislation. And Nixon didn't want to sign it. And um, 
Heckler told me he got up and held a press conference and said, if the president doesn't sign it, there will be a nationwide coal strike tomorrow, and this country will be thrown into an energy crisis. And Nixon signed it that night. <laughs> and Heckler said, I didn't really know if there was going to be a... Uh... <laughs> That's how power works. There's a scene in Kissinger's memoirs, do not buy the book. And uh, Nixon has taken empty city buses end to end around the White House. And there's tens of thousands of anti-war demonstrators. And Nixon's wringing his hands, looking out the window, going, Henry, they're going to break through the barricades and get us. And that's just where we want people in power to be. That's our job as citizens. And the job of corporate politicians, and I'm going to have to include Obama, is to deliver credulous voters before the altar of corporate power. And Ron Suskind, his book, Confidence Men, which is the inside story of the Obama collusion with Wall Street, points this out that Obama meets with the CEOs of Wall Street, Suskind reports, early on in his presidency and says the only thing between you and the pitchforks is me. And in the book, at one point, Suskind's interviewing a corporate executive and asks him why they keep criticizing Obama when Obama gives them everything they want. And they say, oh, no, no, we have to keep criticizing him because that's how we, we keep him off balance so that he'll always give us what we want. The fact that we have allowed Wall Street to build a financial system that, in essence, counts debt as income that has created a mechanism where they borrow money at virtually 0% interest, and then, especially if we're late on our credit cards, loans it back to us at 28% interest. I don't know. I don't think that's capitalism. I don't know what it is. Extortion. But it's not a sustainable system. Michael Hudson, in his new book, writes that there have been societies, including the end of the Roman Empire, where speculators have seized power. But he said what's unique about neoliberalism or globalization is that we're the first society who actually argues that debt is a form of wealth creation. And you have created a parasitic class that in essence is making its money by throwing larger and larger sections of the population into debt peonage, and in particular students. There's a reason wages don't rise. There's a reason college tuitions continue to skyrocket. And courtesy of this Congress, students who borrow money will eventually pay more interest than if they'd taken it from a bank. 
And debt peonage, of course, is always a form of social control, as any African-American understands. And so we stand at the moment facing some deep, frightening forces. We have watched our capitalist democracy be transformed, largely through the courts, into what the philosopher Sheldon Wolin calls inverted totalitarianism, and by that he means it's not classical totalitarianism. It doesn't find its expression through a demagogue or a charismatic leader, but through the anonymity of the corporate state. And that in a classical totalitarian regime, you have a party that creates new symbols, new vocabulary, new mechanisms of control. In inverted totalitarianism, you have corporate forces that purport to pay fealty to the Constitution, the iconography and language of American patriotism, electoral politics, and yet internally have seized the levers of power to render the citizen impotent. It's a faceless system, as Hannah Arendt writes writes in Origins of Totalitarianism. And the courts are used to strip us of our rights by reinterpreting our constitutional guarantees so that Citizens United becomes a way to petition the government or a form of free speech. All of the challenges, the legal challenges that we have made since the Snowden revelations have come to naught. And we are the most watched, photographed, monitored, eavesdropped population in human history. And when the government watches you 24 hours a day, you cannot use the word liberty. That is the relationship between a master and a slave. And the government knows what's coming. They have run scenario after scenario. The militarization of police forces. Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, which, as you heard, I sued Obama in federal court over. This was a section that overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which prohibited the military from serving as a domestic police force. It's was a seismic moment in American history and went virtually uncovered with the exception of my old employer, the New York Times, who not only covered the trial, but when Judge Catherine B. Forrest ruled in our favor, wrote an editorial praising her decision. But it didn't appear on MSNBC because it didn't make Obama look good, and it didn't appear on Fox because it didn't make the Republicans look good. And that section within the NDAA, which is renewed every year, 
in essence, allows the government to carry out acts of extraordinary rendition on the streets of American cities to seize U.S. citizens deemed to be terrorists, hold them indefinitely in military facilities, and strip them of due process. And Judge Forrest, in her 112-page opinion, wrote that this, in essence, gives the government the ability to criminalize an entire category of people and strip them of their rights. And she brought up the 110,000 Japanese Americans who were interned in World War II. And it was instructive of the failure of our court system not just to defend the rights of citizens, but the Constitution itself that her ruling created a terrible dilemma. The Obama administration appealed. They didn't just appeal. They appeared at her chambers the day she issued a temporary injunction invalidating that law. And And they said, you must put it back into effect immediately in the name of national security. And instead of the federal attorneys, they now had attorneys from the NSA. And Judge Forrest, to her credit, refused. That was a Friday. 9 a.m., Monday morning, they were in the Second Circuit Appellate Court making the same request, and unfortunately, the Appellate Court agreed. Why? Why? We knew they'd appeal. And the only assumption that the attorneys and I could make was that they're already using the law. That there are most probably U.S., Pakistani dual nationals in black sites somewhere. And if that injunction was allowed to stand, if they got out, they could hold the government in contempt of court. Now, what did the Second Circuit do? And this was a window, or is a window, into how our our judicial system has become a wholly owned subsidiary of the corporate state. They held the hearing, and then they wouldn't rule for months. And they waited. I was a plaintiff before the Supreme Court. This was before the Snowden revelations in a case called Clapper versus Amnesty International where I and other journalists had challenged the government on wholesale wiretapping. And the federal attorneys got up, the government attorneys at the Supreme Court, And they said, we had no right to bring this charge because the charge that the government was carrying out surveillance was, in their words, speculation. And then they added that if we were being watched by the government, the government would tell us. (laughs) And so the Supreme Court threw the case out, and the Second Circuit said, look, Hedges doesn't have standing in Clapper versus Amnesty International, Therefore, he doesn't have standing in Hedges versus Obama. And it became law. In case after case, and we haven't begun to talk about the system of mass incarceration, where 94% of the people in our prisons, we have, of course, 25% of the world's prison population with 5% of the world's population, 94% never go to trial. 
So, in that sense, technically, they're innocent because they never had a chance. And as anyone who works in a prison will tell you, those who habitually have the longest sentences are those who went to trial. Because as Michelle Alexander points out, the system is not designed to provide trial by jury. It's designed to offer plea agreements. And the students that I have with the longest sentences are usually the ones who didn't commit the crime because they naively, because they were innocent, believed that they could go to a court and find justice. But what happens is that the 15 charges, because in a plea agreement they'll knock off so many, you get charged with all of them. And it's one of the reasons I teach in a prison is because these people have no illusion about what's happened to our country. They understand power. They understand what Hannah Arendt calls omnipotent policing. She writes about it as a woman who has become stateless. She's picked up by the Gestapo, held for three weeks, almost killed. She almost doesn't make it out ends up in France without a passport, and she sees the way the French police treat people like her, who have no rights as French citizens, indeed have been stripped of their citizenship entirely. And in The Origins of Totalitarianism, she said, when you create a segment of your population that has no rights... Rights become privileges. And when rights become privileges, they can be taken away. And that's exactly what's happened in our poor communities of color, where police serve as judge, jury, and executioners. In most of these trials, it's the word of the police against you. so that there is both a legal mechanism and a physical mechanism in poor communities of color that essentially allows the state to govern under what can only be described as martial law, including the indiscriminate use of lethal force against unarmed citizens. And Aaron warns that if a society devolves and there is unrest and instability, that legal and physical mechanism of omnipotent policing instantly can spread. I I have children and I'm terrified about the world that they will inherit environmentally, politically. I was a war correspondent for 20 years. I know violence and I hate violence. I don't believe in just war. 
Once you employ violence, it's a poison. And that is the focus of my book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. I believe, as Father Daniel Berrigan says, that the essence of faith is that the good draws to it the good, at least the good insofar as we can determine it, and then we must let it go. The Buddhists call it karma. Even empirically of everything around us points to the fact that our struggles have been futile. It does not invalidate the struggle for justice. And I think that we have to recover that sense of faith. That belief that we are called to stand on the side of the oppressed. That understanding that when you join the oppressed, you will get treated like the oppressed. And I think human history has borne out that when movements hold fast to a moral imperative, they will not achieve formal positions of power, but they can begin to seismically move the society. I covered the Velvet Revolution with Václav Havel. I was every night in the Magic Lantern Theater with Havel and Klaus and Dinsbeer. And Havel's great 1978 essay, The Power of the Powerless, makes this point. He calls it living in truth. And I think that, for those of us who care about justice, have forgotten that it is not our job to take power. It is our job to keep power in check. And let me here commend the activists in Seattle who shut down that highway. And that is what the establishment in this political moment fear the most. They fear that we will step outside that system of managed democracy, that political theater, and find our own voice and our own power. And they're frightened. And they will work very, very hard to sell you once again the mantra of the least worst. But look, look at our own history. Every time we vote for the least worst, it gets worse. It doesn't work. Every despotic regime that falls, every revolution that succeeds, as Crane Brinton and Jeffrey Davies, the great theorists on revolution, have pointed out, succeeds when significant sectors of the foot soldiers of the elite, the civil service, the bureaucracy, the police, refuse to defend 
discredited centers of power. And that is why I believe they passed Section 1021 of the NDAA. They don't totally trust the police to protect them. We went to Pelosi during that two-year battle, and we said, when you renew it, all you have to do is insert into that section that this does not apply to U.S. citizens, and we will drop our lawsuit. But of course they did not, because it was written for U.S. citizens. The Chicago teachers march through the streets. They go to the precinct houses, and the police applaud. I was arrested in front of the White House a couple years ago with 133 others, most all of whom were veterans, protesting the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And as they cuffed us, it turned out those police had been in the National Guard. They'd been in Iraq. They'd been in Afghanistan, and they would whisper, keep protesting. When we were arrested in front of the Congress, as we were being escorted out, one of the police officers turned and said, how do we get money out of politics? And that's why nonviolence is so important, because it is about the good drawing to it the good. And it's not easy, and I am acutely aware of the violence that police employ against the poor, and in particular poor people of color in this country. And yet at this moment in history, those who hold power are morally bankrupt and have been exposed. And if we can recover the moral force to resist, to carry out sustained acts of civil disobedience, to create third parties outside of the system that give expression to those movements. Then we can use the word hope. Thank you. We had some really good news out of Spokane, Washington this week, where a judge ruled that three individuals that had been tortured by the U.S. government had the right to sue the government. I'm wondering if you're seeing other points of light in the legal system that you could shed some light on for us tonight. Well, there are points of light, including there are judges that ruled after the Snowden revelations that... um, As Al Gore said, this was a crime against the Constitution. But the superstructure itself shuts down those individuals of conscience. I mean, there is no way to justify giving the U.S. Constitution the surrender of our privacy. It cannot be done legally. There is no way to justify under our Constitution the use of the military as a domestic police force. So... um, There is no way, I think, to justify the absurd idea that corporations are human beings and have a right to drop 
dark money into our elections. Um, so I think the, the court system, while you can get singular individuals, and for, Catherine Forrest would be one, uh, the weight of the institution nullifies what they've done. I mean, the issue of privacy, I think I found the, the, the inability of our system to respond to give us back our privacy, I found quite frightening. I wanted to address the financial terrorism from the banks, as we know, after the bailout, eight years later, they're still rampant with fraudulent deeds, and they're telling homeowners to stop payments in order to qualify for the programs that were in place. And how do we, I mean, Iceland broke up the banks. Right. Well, they put bankers in jail. Put them in jail, because I think if we just find them, it's another tax write-off. Right. So I think we have to hold them accountable and jail them. Well, they never get fined. I mean, Goldman Sachs just paid $5 billion, which is nothing for Goldman right. Sachs. And actually, you know, that's kind of, if you look at the fine print, they're not, never going to pay $5 billion. Um, no. But nobody's held accountable. I mean, Lloyd uh, Blankfein should be in prison. Most of my students should be out of prison. So it's like, would you break up the banks and do state banks? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm with Ralph Nader. We need to nationalize the banking system. Yeah. Thank you. Along with public transportation, along with the utilities, private companies have no right owning water or electricity. Um, Yeah, and you know, at the bailout in 2008, Nader said, why are we giving trillions of dollars to Citibank? Why aren't we creating public banks with our money? And why aren't these public banks renegotiating these fraudulent mortgages so that people are not forced out of their homes. This is a rational response. You know, the bailout bill of 2008 had no public support. Constituent calls were 100 to 1 against the bailout. It doesn't matter. When, they, when, I, when we did that, when we sued Obama under the NDAA, they did a, a national poll. It had a 97% disapproval rating. But it passed anyway. Nobody wants the TPP, or at least we've seen what NAFTA does, and the TPP is NAFTA on steroids. We get it. We get trade agreements. We know what they're about. And, and you know, there's an extremely good chance that as soon as these elections are over in November, these people are going to go in and pass it. Do you think Obama ever had good intentions when he was campaigning, or do you think he knew all the bad things he's going to do when he got in. Well, the difference between um, Barack Obama and George W. Bush is that George W. Bush was as stupid as he looks (laughs) and clueless. And Obama, I think, was cynical. Obama is smart. He knew damn well what he was doing um, when he was only two years in the Senate. But Kucinich gave me his voting record. He said, you better read it because it is one corporate giveaway after another. In that sense, I don't care what they say. And, I mean, they spend a lot of money on public relations. I care how they vote. And one of the problems with Sanders is that, yes, he voted against the war in Iraq, but he subsequently voted for the military appropriations to keep these wars going, and the money for national security. So I think Obama 
uh, Plato's. And I think if you look at Suskind's book or, you know, where there's kind of reporting behind the veil that, that I mean, remember, he's a product of the Chicago political machine, which is one of the dirtiest machines in the country. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Hi. Um, first of all, I, I missed the first part, so I just want to thank the Duwamish for having us be on their land, and I want to thank them for the, the generosity that they give us. And um, I am really concerned about the fossil fuels and especially what they're planning on doing in this region, and I'm planning on getting arrested on May 15th. Good. And so I don't know how many other people are planning on getting arrested, but we're really, I'm also really concerned and if anyone wants to know, we'll give you some information on it. It's called Break Free. And, but with all of this, I also ran a lobby organization in the 80s when Reagan was doing, doing the Iran-Contra affair, Hanford, START Treaty, and we were very successful. We got what we wanted. And, you know, we had 60,000 members behind us, and I sent people week to week to week after that. But I don't even think that we can do that anymore. I really don't think that the people's voices can be heard anymore if I even set up a lobby organization to send individuals to, to right. Well, Congress. look, you make a, a good point because, and this gets into the destruction of our media. Mm-hmm. So Clinton, which did a lot of damage to working men and women in this country, um, pat- deregulated the FCC. So we allowed a roughly a half dozen corporations to buy up the airwaves, Viacom, Comcast, General Electric. Murdoch's News Corp. And at the same time, public radio and public television was destroyed and became dependent on corporate money or grant money, which is democratic or corporate money. So that on the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, on Morning Edition, who are they interviewing? Wolfowitz. (laughs) Reverentially. So what have we learned, you know? Um, and, and so as people resist, we saw this with the Iraq war, hundreds of thousands of people marching San Francisco, uh, not covered, totally blocked out. Even last week when we had the, the democracy awakening, right. how many people saw that? Right, democracy, well, I was there for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. And so... That is a difference. In the 60s, CBS, and they would all have the cameras down in, in Birmingham. Or, and it's all become about ratings. I mean, it's much more pernicious than the old newspaper empires, like the Hearst Empire, which were bad enough. He kind of gave us the Spanish-American War and the advent of American imperialism overseas. But now it's a giant corporation where... News is just one of perhaps hundreds of revenue streams, and they compete against those other revenue streams. So it's all about advertising or ratings, and there's been an utter destruction, especially on the commercial media of the news industry. So you're right. You raise a good point. It is much harder for the voice, the unapproved or un sanctioned voices of the citizenry to be heard. Um, And that's dangerous because the more they shut us down, I mean, you look at the Occupy movement, so you have this relatively benign, they weren't quite as revolutionary as they thought, 
movement that asks for very rational things, jobs, universal health care, and the state eradicates them physically. Now, a rational response would have been a jobs program, would have been health care, would have been a moratorium on student, that all that would have been rational. But because corporate power is now unfettered and uncontrolled, and, and because they don't, as a writer, in New, the New Yorker said, they don't live in America, they live in Richistan. They're not sitting next to you on the economy seat in Delta. They don't have any clue. And, and, and when societies disintegrate, and you can look at the Forbidden City, Versailles, they retreat into these worlds that are utterly unplugged from what's happening around them, and yet they have total power. And so they're making decisions without understanding the consequences. And that's where we are, and that's why it's dangerous. Because they have no conception. I mean, you see it, how knocked off balance they have been by this political campaign. You see it on the TV with the the chattering, all the courtiers posing as television journalists. So you're right. It's harder. You're right. But how, what do we do, though? I mean, we have to get out there and just keep fighting anyway. Yeah. yeah. Just keep going. Yeah. yeah. So we want to see you out there May 13th to 15th at Banana Cordis. Join us. It's great to see you again. Um, on one hand, there's a, an appropriate outrage of the corporate buying of Congress. But Peter Schweizer wrote an excellent book, or what I thought was excellent, about the huge role of extortion of the, uh, against the corporatists, not that the corporations are necessarily victims, but the, actually the acquisition of power through extortion uh, by both political parties. And so it seems to me that uh, the corruption's Two sides of the same coin. Well, it wasn't quite extortion. What happened, it really came, rose with uh, Clinton's understanding that if he did corporate bidding, he got corporate money. So that's how you got NAFTA. That's how you got the destruction of the welfare system. Originally, under our old welfare system, 70% of those recipients were children. That's how you get the omnibus crime bill of 1994 that explodes the prison population. That's how you get the destruction of Glass-Steagall. FCC, and by the 90s, the Democratic Party had fundraising parity with the Republicans, and when Obama ran in 2008, he got more. So basically what you had was a Democratic establishment that did have at one point a liberal wing that decided to sell itself out completely, and that's why Nader ran for president, because I think 24 pieces of major health, safety, and environmental legislation were written by Ralph Nader, but pushed through the Congress by that liberal wing of the Democratic Party that no longer exists. Um, And that, unfortunately, now has become the system that governs. So it's, it's one bird of prey with two wings. You mentioned... Syriza and uh, Yanis Varoufakis was at Town right. Hall last night, and uh, 
they went from 4% to control. And right. then they split, and they capitulated and surrendered, and now Greece is worse off right. than they were before. Right. So, Well, let's be clear about what happened. The international banking system, which really doesn't give a damn about the Greek economy, I think it's 2% of the EU, it's insignificant, understood that this was a political war. That if Greece was allowed to walk away, Portugal, Spain, Ireland were all going next. And so they went to the Greek government and, in essence, you know, the Greeks bring in hundreds of tons of produce, all of their pharmaceuticals, and they said, you will end up like Salvador Allende in 1973 in Chile. You won't have any gas. You won't have any food. You will have power outages. We will destroy you. And, and they would have. And so the Greek government was, in essence, held hostage. And I don't know what he said last night, but I suspect he said this is not ultimately sustainable. Right. That what, what's happening is that the international banking system, including Goldman Sachs, is extracting every last drop of blood before they toss Greece on the dunghill. Yeah, what he did say is that he said when they got the ultimatum that the banks were going to be closed, he said, okay, we just cancel the debt. And that's when he was thrown out. He said, Well, that was we, his position, but yeah. the, the consequences would have been socially catastrophic. And then, I mean, you're talking about the, the inability of people to get medicine, absence of medicine in hospitals. I mean, and they would have stopped at nothing. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't matter how many people died. Two quick questions. Uh, there was supposed to be a democracy rally the 16th to the 19th. What was the turnout for that? And then secondly, uh, Can we get this done without a French-like revolution? Uh, I don't think that we can work with corporate power. I think corporate power must be destroyed or overthrown. I'll repeat that for the Homeland Security person. That's overthrown. No, I think we've reached a point where the system is incapable of internal reform. And I obviously want to see a revolutionary movement that's nonviolent. And I watched it in Eastern Europe. I mean, in the Stasi state of East Germany, which was the most efficient police state until our own. And there it followed the classic pattern of revolutions whereby as the demonstrations grew in Leipzig, Eric Honecker, who'd been the communist dictator for 19 years, sent down an elite paratroop division to Leipzig to shoot the crowd. And when the paratroopers got to Leipzig, the communist party officials in Leipzig forbade them to deploy in the streets. And Honecker was out within a week. Um, these regimes that are this decayed as ours is can crumble very quickly once those who are tasked with employing the brute mechanisms of control will no longer do so. That's how the Russian Revolution was a non Yes, there was anarchist violence and 
Alexander II was assassinated. But it fundamentally fell through nonviolence. When the Petrograd bread riots happened, the Cossacks were sent in, and they refused to fire on the crowd. So the czar is up on the front. They shove him in, a, in the imperial rail carriage. He abdicates on a railway siding. He didn't even make it back. That is true in every revolution. So once the system is discredited, we had 500,000 people in Alexanderplatz in East Germany, 500,000 people in Wenceslas Square in Prague, and that discredited elite. And it doesn't matter how many weapons they have. The Shah of Iran had the fourth largest military in the world at the time. But once he fled, the armed forces issued a statement that they would, they would not protect the regime. That's, that is how revolutions happen. It gets into the Bolshevik Revolution, which, as Adam Ullman, the great scholar of the revolution, says was in fact a counter-revolution. The destruction of decentralized power, the Soviets, Lenin and the Bolsheviks create a paramilitary faction with the Red Guards, uh, they go in in October and and violently take control and then impose a form of state capitalism. And revolutions are always susceptible to counter-revolutions. This is what happened in, in Romania in particular, where which I also covered, where Ceausescu was overthrown. You had a few days where workers took over the factories and then the Securitate showed up again. Um, but... We have more power than we, I think. And once we begin to exercise that power, it becomes apparent. You know, you know the, you can see it on a video, I, probably on YouTube, but Ceausescu would hold his annual meetings when they'd bus all the workers into the square, and it's, it's an amazing moment in history, and he's up on the balcony with his wife, Elena, and eventually the crowd just starts booing and hissing. It was unthinkable in Romania. And you watch him in a panic, and you watch him in the microphone suddenly start offering reforms. <laughs> and then he's helicoptered out. And we have that power if we, if we use it. And it's time to use it. You stand tonight in front of and behind the symbol of the Jesuit Catholic higher education and the Roman Catholic Church. Yet the church stands indicted and has admitted to childhood and innocent victim sexual abuse, admitted to hiding it, admitted to their bishops and archbishops, systematically hiding it, and records are still in Seattle being kept secret. How do we make the church tremble and change and give up its power over us? Well, I think the church, the church has, by pay, making those crimes public, and I think the church has suffered... Um, from that exposure, um, 
and it is the role for me as a journalist always, I mean, the reason I became a journalist was to give a voice to those people who otherwise would not have a voice within the society. And the press, that movie Spotlight kind of picked it up, for many years bowed before the power of the church and refused to give the victims a voice. Um, But the more those victims are given a voice, the healthier the society becomes. Um, And, you know, again, the the church was not, and it was, you know, ostensibly with years of theological training and ethical training, the church itself as an institution did not respond until there was pressure from the outside for it to respond. And there's a perfect example of how even an institution that sets itself up as a moral voice within the society. I mean, this is what the great theologian Paul Tillich correctly pointed out, that every institution, including the church, is inherently demonic. And, um, and that's why, as Reinhold Niebuhr writes, no institution can ever achieve the morality that an individual can achieve who is not beholden to structures of power. So the more those voices are heard, uh, the more we organize to force the church, any institution in terms of accountability, the, the healthier the society becomes. But we're not where we should be, but we're, we're further along than we were a couple decades ago. Well, I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I'm a, I'm a Protestant, so <laughs> trying to be balanced. <laughs> Unfortunately, we just have time for one more question. Recently, the state of California passed uh, Resolution 35. Are you familiar with it? Wh- which is it? Uh, Resolution 35, right, but which what is it? stated that you cannot say anything negative against the state of Israel. Oh, or right. Yeah, and... Yeah especially in the academic world. How could they possibly have passed that resolution when we do have the right to freedom of speech? Well, (laughs) we have the right of freedom of speech as long as it is set within the parameters they give us, which, as Dorothy Parker once said about Catherine Hepburn's emotional range as an actress runs from A to B. (laughs) And if you step outside those parameters, you have no voice. So what is the debate about Syria? Should we bomb them or should we bomb them and put boots on the ground? As if those are the two options. Well, I'm a strong supporter of the BDS movement. Um... Israel is terrified because it's taken off in Europe. If the United States pulls the plug on Israel, it will not be able to continue its apartheid state and its reign of terror against the Palestinian people. Um, Sander doesn't like me too much, and one of the reasons he doesn't like me is because right after he and every other senator voted for that APAC resolution when they were bombing Gaza about Israel's right to defend itself. He and I spoke in Wisconsin, and as soon as he finished, I got up and spoke about Palestine. 
and called him and every other center an APAC wind-up doll. Um, I mean, are you really, it's like the old Soviet Union. Are you telling me there isn't one senator who opposes the saturation bombing of a people that do not have an air force, mechanized units, artillery, a navy? That's not a war. It's murder. And the Israeli government has used the mechanism that powerful entities, the gun lobby, corporations use, and that's money. They bought these people off. And if you challenge them, they will use their considerable resources to destroy you. But it's interesting, I speak to students for Justice Palestine at all sorts of universities, and invariably, when I meet with them, half of them are Jewish. You know, young Jewish men and women with a conscience. And that scares Israel tremendously, and they have every right to be scared. So what they're doing is banning these movements, Northeastern, other Florida State, others. Um, and they, it's, it's, it follows a very familiar pattern where not only are the movements banned, but all of the students who are in that movement are stripped of their positions of leadership in the university. So when I was at Northeastern, I was there a week after they banned it for putting up mock eviction notice, notices to draw attention of the seizure of Palestinian homes by Israelis. Um, the students, there was a student in that group who was president of the student council. He was stripped of his, it's nothing to do with Israel. They remo- and then they put them all on probation. And they run it out of the Hillel house, which is just an, it's, the Hillel houses have become little outposts of APAC. But ultimately that's going to be very counterproductive for Israel, I think. And... Um, the fact that they have overreacted to BDS to such an extent shows how frightened they are. Um, and I just spoke to about 300 BDS activists in uh, Washington. All of my energy goes into movements. I don't. I will vote third party unless the Green Party doesn't make it on the ballot in New Jersey. Then I'll vote. For, I'll write in Edward Snowden. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to play their game. I'm not going to play their game. And uh, the sooner large numbers of us step out and stop playing their game, the more trouble they're going to be in. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Chris Hedges spoke in a Town Hall Seattle-sponsored event at Seattle University on April 25th. Thanks again to Anna Tatashev for our recording. Tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.